It's November 10th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's headlines in the world of acquisition. Uh, so the first one we got, DARPA nabs Gremlin drone in midair for first time from Defense News. And of course, that's Dynetics X61 Gremlin being recovered uh, in a C-130J. Matt, did you actually watch the, the video on that one? It actually, it, it looked yeah, I did. a lot like just like a tanker, you know, connection, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's kind of what it reminded me of. That's what it seemed like. The, what they say here is, well, one gremlin was recovered. The second one was destroyed during the flight test, DARPA said. The gremlins team then refurbished the recovered drone and flew it again within 24 working hours. So 24 working hours, I'm assuming that's like, what, eight eight real days? Eight eight full work days <laughs> um, instead of one day turnaround. <laughs> but People works through the night, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just noticed that one there. But um, the agency hopes each drone would have a lifetime of 20 flights. The agency said flying these relatively disposable drones would allow the military to accomplish missions for much more cheaply and with less maintenance effort than relying on non-expendable systems meant to fly for decades. So this one seems pretty... We've been tracking this one for a while. The next goal is to recover four of these drones in half an hour, which actually seems kind of like a long time. So um, it seems like they're going to have their hands full with just like the engineering sense. But it seems like, you know, there's no like scientific problem here, right? It's just like all the pieces are in place. It's just getting it right. Yeah, it kind of seems like one of those. <clears throat> I think they made the point in the article about you know, it, it requires a lot of things to kind of work together to, you know, um, to, to track it and, you know, where the, where the drone is at, when the, you know, lower the little mini crane thing there, you know, how to connect, you know, when to connect. I mean, it, it is sort of a, um, you know, it's like a timing exercise, like all of it has to work, you know, together to, to, to be, to, to successfully retrieve it. But yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was definitely, it's definitely an interesting, um, exercises they're doing and there definitely seems to be some applicability i do i do kind of wonder though like these disposable drones and these these particular drones are only like 14 feet long and they're they have like a little little mini uh, turbofan engine on it they're not they're not like super capable and it, it did kind of make me think of even though they're only 14 feet long they if they went into a theater, they talked about how like the mothership would stay back and then these drones are going. I mean, these drones could still get shot down pretty easily. Um, I don't know if they, you know, I don't know if like, you know, a far nation would fire their most expensive missiles at it because maybe they wouldn't see it as like a big threat, but you know, they're definitely going to be vulnerable. They're flying 0.6 or only like 0.6 Mach. So only flying a few hundred miles an hour. And um yeah, so I wonder. They're not. They're not exactly like meant to be survivable. So it is kind of interesting that um, they 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 are focusing so much on retrieving them. Uh, I personally feel like we still need so much work on, you know, how to swarm, like how to use them effectively. Honestly, I'd rather almost see more of the energy being devoted to that. Like, how do you get these things to work in tandem to achieve different effects, or you know, um, more on. Well, the they're game. they're working on that in the Vanguard. One That's of those true. Vanguard programs, right? Yeah, Skyborg is supposed to be working on that. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a separate effort. Skyborg was one of the Vanguards, and there was another one on Golden the, Horde. The swarming. Yeah, Golden Horde. That's right. Yeah, I think that was more for the weapons, though. But yeah, no, you're right. That I, that is I, that's honestly though where my focus is. Is just like you know, if, I, I feel like it in a, in a real battle where you were kind of throwing a lot of stuff at the fight, being able to retrieve some. I couldn't get a price on these ones, but 
being able to retrieve some fairly, fairly cheap drones, I think probably would be like one of your last real, real uh, concerns. So, um, so yeah, interesting, definitely has some applicability, but um, yeah, I'm still not totally seeing it in like the need for it in like the high end fight, but. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's why there's no requirement and it's still being done at DARPA and I guess in tandem with AFRL, but you know, I guess it seems to me that this thing where it is right now, isn't, I don't know if it's really so S and T E, right. It's just like, maybe they can only do kind of like the iteration without the, the long range requirement in that place. So that's where they have to do it if they want it to get anywhere. But, you know, I think a lot of things seem kind of like toyish when they, when they first start out. And of course it's like the first of this kind. So you can imagine like lots of different things happening in the future. It's just kind of, I guess, um, I don't know. It, it seems eminently possible and why not experiment with it is, is kind of my point of view, I guess maybe budget constraint kind of thing, you know, other priorities, but. One of the, one of the, one of the areas where this, this kind of could have some play is like with the uh, arsenal plane concept, which we haven't talked about in a little while, but you know, under that concept is you'd have more higher end aircraft that maybe had lower um, or not as much uh, internal payload because they wanted to keep their low observability. Uh, so, they, so they wouldn't have a lot of weapons on board, but they could get closer to do the targeting. And then and this arsenal plane, which would be kind of like stacked with, you know, missiles, different missiles uh, that could be launched or cru cruise missiles or, you know, air to air missiles even. And uh, you could you could launch them from the arsenal plane, which would be kind of back out of the, uh, you know, the primary, uh, primary threat area. So, uh, you know, this kind of makes sense. Like if you if you had an arsenal plane, if that concept was working, and then you just threw threw a bunch of these drones in that had different, uh, not called drone, unmanned aircraft that had different missions they could they could go after. Uh, it does seem like it does seem like that would be a nice addition to to the arsenal plane. Like you know now, okay, yeah, maybe we can go out and do do some ISR in this region, but you know they still would be uh, still they still would be under threat. You know if they if they went into a high threat area. I feel like that's the way to make a new requirement win is by framing it as a logical extension of the legacy concepts, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even if you're not quite sure exactly what it's going to look like. So, well, yeah. it's going to look like what you thought it was going to look like and something else. Um, let's move on. This was a kind of big news that, that dropped this past week. DOD suspends cybersecurity certification program pending major changes from NextGov. According to the notice, CMMC 2.0 would remove levels two and four. So there was one through five, and now there's just one, two, and three. Um, all level one contractors would be allowed to self-attest to their cybersecurity. Uh, the notice said that the second level one, uh, the, that little second level of contractors uh, would actually be bifurcated into priority and non-priority acquisitions so that those that are priority would... Uh, actually be able to avoid independent third-party assessments. And so, and then the third and highest level, those uh, processes are yet to be determined. So looks like this was kind of what a lot of people were expecting, I guess, after the change of the administration, uh, would they roll out as gung-ho with CMMC or not? Looks like they pulled back a little bit. The self-attesting is kind of interesting, right? And I guess it makes sense just because of, we knew that, right? They were saying there's just not enough third-party um, you know, auditors to go out and do all these 300,000 potentially 
um, in the industrial base. So it looks like a lot of those that will be kind of level one or non-priority level twos, the old level threes. So um, what have you been hearing on this? Yeah, no, this was, I expected some big changes. I didn't actually know all the details. They kept that pretty close hold, but this, um, I, honestly, this was like more sensible than I, than I expected. Um, I, I thought they would retain a little bit more of the original CMMC, but yeah, this, this made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, they're going to, they, they removed some of the additional controls. So they kind of backed off some of the, um, kind of a, you know, basically more stringent things that were added on to what NIST had recommended. And so they, they really stuck more closely to the 800-171. Um, and they, uh, they also, one of the biggest things I, I think that didn't get as much play, but almost maybe should have been the title of it, of this article, is that they allowed the, uh, the acceptance of a, of a plan um, uh, to, to, to actually get well, POAM, yeah. You know, so you could actually submit a get well plan and be like, here's what we, you know, especially like when you're competing for a contract, like if it's your first contract as a, as a defense contractor, you could say, yeah, I recognize these are the controls that I have to meet. I'm meeting, you know, 10 of the 50 and here's my plan to get well on the 40. And then during contract execution, I mean, it's going to be up to the, you know, it'll be up to the government to actually monitor that and say, okay, are you burning those down? I think they probably, you know, the government should have a plan of, you know, within a year, we expect you to get there. Like it should just be this, you know, forever, you know, take, you can take as long as you want. Like there should be some discipline there. Uh, and then also I think on the, uh, the fact that now they backed off the, uh, you know, everyone has to have an independent third-party assessment and all the craziness with having like different companies having to be certifiers and all this stuff. This also allows, I think, DCMA to have a more manageable pool of companies that they need to go look at. And, and I would definitely hope that they would make like surprise inspections or, you know, unplanned inspections for those that are self-attesting uh, just to keep the system honest, because I think self-attestation was one of the issues that a lot of people had previous to CMMC is that, you know, nobody was monitoring it. Nobody was checking on it and whether companies were doing it, you know, it was almost unknown. And so I, I think there should be a little bit more discipline put into that and make sure that contractors know they could be, you know, evaluated at any time. But yeah, this makes a lot more sense. And uh, I think I think this will be something that industry can get on board with without, you know, everybody running for the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it does seem to water down a lot of the original intent there, especially with that self-edification. Yeah. But, um, you know, and, and ultimately it makes the most sense. But then, of course, they also said, well, it's really the guys lower down the supply chain that are like the the most vulnerable like aspects that get into these systems. So, um, you know, I guess reality sometimes bites, but, <laughs> you know, one of the other things here on, on self-attesting um, from a federal news network article, the, sh the shift to self-attestation also brings false claims act into play. The department of justice recently launched a cyber civil fraud initiative to pursue cybersecurity fraud by contractors and grant recipients. There's a lot of room for whistleblowers, a lot of room for the government to come in and second guess the company. So there's another little, I guess, maybe was that not in play always? Um, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's only when you get it on contract that's the CMMC like in your RFP. Does this come in, into play or no, was that already there? That was already there. The False Claims Act has been there for a while, but I think it was more of, I mean, you know, applied to like these POAMs and stuff like that. 
Right. And we also didn't have like the workforce or the structure around uh, verifying this, right? Like, you know, we didn't have, we had cybersecurity experts, but they weren't focused on like, uh, you know, compliance from the contractor point of view, right? They were focused more on making sure you had a, a good ISP and architecture and all that stuff. So, you know, there's a lot more to the, there's a lot more to what CMMC encompasses than would have been typical back then. So now the department has shifted that, shift that focus and you'll have to have people on the program, I think, that are paying more attention to this. Uh, and, and, you know, DCMA, I expect DCMA to kind of play a much bigger role role in monitoring this too. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what, what what comes out now that this is now that this is in work. Um, sounds like though none of this will really. They're still going to let the rulemaking process go. So it could still be some time before this becomes uh, becomes effective. So I'm not sure how long that will be. But. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it was a year or two ago. Kay Arrington was saying like in the end of 2020 there's supposed to be CMMC requirements in the first you know pilot contracts, and then I guess that slipped. And now they say um, they previously planned on initiating 15 pilot contracts this year. And now they're going to they're basically just going to push that um, to the future. So so we'll see when it actually kind of lands. Right. But it would have been interesting. You know, this would this would have been an amazing opportunity for doing like some kind of history or like insight. It should be like a book. Like how did like what was this thing? How did it roll out? What were the problems? It's like kind of like an epic saga but also there's probably a lot for policymakers to learn in in what happened in cmmc but i'm sure you know we'll just kind of trudge along into the future and the next thing um we'll kind of go through a lot of the same problems yeah one, one last thought on this is yeah i totally agree is one thing i think this will do is it will make the department i also pay a little bit more attention to how they classify things as um a cui um and so you know, there's there's a little bit of a tendency controlled to make unclassified information. For, yeah. yeah. So you know, given given how they you know interpreted this uh, with those levels, and now that there's not as many levels to push somebody into a level two, uh, just because you know you're classifying you know the architecture of the system as CUI. I mean, most DoD briefs will have CUI on them, so I think they're going to have to be pay a little bit more attention to that if you know, if they're handing that material over to a contractor and the contractor now has to manage it. Um, is it really CUI or is that just, you know, is it just department department information that's, you know, generally going to get out into the public domain anyway? It doesn't need a lot of special protection. So, yeah. Yeah, I heard that like even like a lot of the financial information, like just like contract data with government is like straight up cooey now, right? Or... I'm not really sure where that was landing, but it seemed like that was a worry as well. Honestly, I couldn't tell you. I honestly could not tell you what what should be CUI uh, or not. It's so um, it's just like it's just ingrained to put. I still have FOU on my head, but it's just ingrained to kind of put that label on almost any brief. Um, so yeah, it's going to require a real rethink on that now that now that it has this kind of downflow impact. Um, I think uh, programs will have to, you know, be a little bit more deliberate. We've got next, a simple user agreement is changing how the Air Force looks at software from Federal News Network. So there's a, a, a new agreement here between Kessel Run and ACCA, the Air Combat Command, 
uh, which is allowing for DevSecOps so that they can kind of consistently update the software rather than going through kind of this more laborious acquisition process. I think they mean the ATO kind of process over there. But um, a lot of interesting things here. Uh, Jackie Torson is saying instead of profit margins, really the feedback comes from the users themselves. Their adoption of software is how we are measuring success. And if we're pushing something out that the users don't do like, then I'm not going to touch it and we're going to use that. So um, that will let them know whether they're on the right or wrong path. But so can you get into this? I think there's the, the capability needs statement that's kind of enabling this um, as part of the adaptive acquisition framework. Uh, what's, what's the lowdown on it? I just love how much press this user agreement is getting. Uh, I think we talked about the last podcast. Um, yeah, so the, the user agreement, there is the capability needs statement or some type of requirements doc, documentation for the software program. And this is all for software pathway programs uh, as part of the adaptive acquisition framework. So the, uh, th that requirements doc, some programs are using legacy docs, so not all of them are using the modern approach, but it, it's generally intended to be more high level requirements, not trying to lock down things like key performance parameters, uh, you know, not, not creating APBs and creating these baselines that are really hard to change. So, you know, the idea is that the top level requirements are more, fle more flexible and can be updated as needed. And then that flows down to, and I think this is what uh, Torsen's getting at with regards to the requirements here, is I think what he's saying is because of that idea that you, you keep the formal requirements at a higher level, it allows you to do a lot more at the lower, the, the middle and lower levels to say, okay, what do you guys really need? How do we fulfill this uh, you know, higher level capability? And you can have that conversation with the users. And that's what the user agreement is really focused on and I actually opened up our template that we have. And just to give a real quick rundown of, you know, the key things in it are to establish, you know, the roles and responsibilities of, of the different, of the different, uh, uh, different uh, people that are involved in it. And that is mainly the operational sponsor, capability owner, uh, also maybe a product owner. And that's something that's becoming more common. Uh, a program manager, a, you know, team lead, a technical lead, so understanding those different roles, you know, who makes the, who determines the prioritization, if, if the, the group can't, can't decide on, you know, which ones to go after first, you have to have somebody who can make that call and that's going to be the capability owner. Um, you know, somebody who's interfacing with the use, different user groups to understand, you know, like to help define a, a user story and, and build that into the backlog, you know, that's going to be more your product managers. And so, understanding those roles. And then also the biggest thing about the user agreement uh, that I think is a change is, yeah, I agree. It's sort of like, it might be like something on your phone in terms of, hey, I'm committing to not do these things. So the user agreement for us, for us, from my perspective is more about here are the things I'm committing to do, right? I am committing to uh, making sure that you get access to the right users as a program who is executing this so that you understand what's needed. Um, you don't have to do a lot of guessing. <laughs> um, I commit, you know, I will commit as, as a, the operational sponsor that, um, you know, I will show up. I will make sure that uh, I understand what resources you need to, to execute the roadmap that you've laid out. And, and you know, we'll, we'll advocate for you to get the right resources that you need. So it's, it's pretty much just laying out all of those expectations in a really clear, clear way uh, that allows that conversation to be had. And I think the other piece that he says, last thing I'll say here is about the measuring success. So the user agreement is not 
the mechanism for measuring success, but it is the structure that establishes how you will measure success, right? It's those representatives, those people in that group um, that are part of the user agreement are going to say, okay, we set the priorities for this next cycle, whether it's a year or six months. Um, here's what we need you, the program office, to deliver. These are our critical capabilities, um, and here's how we're going to measure your success. And it might be user adoption. User adoption is definitely, if you have a broad user group, that's one way to measure it is like, if everyone's using that app, if everyone's like excited about it and you're getting good feedback, then that's success. So you can measure things in different ways. Sometimes it will be more objective, sometimes be more subjective, but that user agreement feeds what is the value assessment. And that's the that's that formal feedback mechanisms where those measures will be captured and where you know the users will populate that and, and give that back to the program office and decision authority to say, hey, acquisition community, here's how good you're doing, or here's how here's how here's what you're not doing. So hope that make, did that make sense there? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see you know, what value assessments actually look like. I'm sure I'll never actually get to see one, but, you know, you know, hear about what they are, but, you know, I was just, you know, I heard like in, in Kessel Run, they're actually still operating from like the AOC 10.2 uh, CDD requirement back in like 2010 or something like that until they kind of updated this. So, you know, yeah, there's definitely a, a need for a lot of these old, like, like other legacy programs. You don't have to be like a, a software factory, but, there's probably a lot of avenue to kind of refactor those old requirements documents in a more streamlined and up-to-date way. Um, so long as, as you were saying, you, you kind of got the stakeholders aligned and it looks like, you know, at least Kessel Run and ACC kind of have a pipeline, like will ACC kind of expand that um, to other places and will, you know, other magic comps and then the other services also kind of, you know, jump on board. Well, one, one, th one thing about requirements, why I'll, I'll tell you why so many programs use their, these old, old outdated requirement stocks is it gives them enough cover to do what they need to do. Um, and, and the other fact is that updating it is so laborious and yeah. just drives so much, you know, it could take years, right. To update a requirement stock. And that's where, that's where we wanted to break away from that is, you know, let's write it high level. Let's make it easy to update when it needs to be updated. And it's not just, you know, you know, months and months of churning on one KPP to decide exactly how it should be worded. So, yeah. But Kessel, but Kessel Run, you know, I guess they got started, what, in like 2017 timeframe, but like, you know, it was really becoming a thing in 2019, 2020. Like, why did this one take so long? I mean, here's supposed to be a high level user needs statement, you know, capability needs statement. <laughs> yeah. Why they did just, it take they just got They just got on the software pathway, so. So they, they actually did this one pretty pretty quick. Oh, I see. So they basically were just like stymied until they they got to, to the software pathway. They they were just stuck. Uh, I think I think they didn't. They just didn't have this particular artifact that was required. You know, so you know they, they definitely had a relationship with ACC, and I'm sure they probably did a lot of these had a lot of these conversations. But there wasn't the formal structure, and so now with the software pathway, there's a little bit more of a a formal structure that everybody can kind of get around. So, well, great. Next one we got Biden nominates Navy Admiral Grady to replace Heighton as vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from the Air Force magazine. Now, less than three weeks remaining before Heighton's departure date on November 20th, Grady's nomination would have to be rushed through in near record time to avoid a vacancy. 
Titans own nomination process stretched on for more than five months. And every chairman and vice chairman in the last decade has taken at least a month to be confirmed by the full Senate. So here we go. Um, Heighton's getting replaced. It, as we kind of talked about last time, he maybe didn't get to as many reforms of the Jason system as he might have wished. But, you know, of course, requirements were there was kind of like requirements reform right in the software acquisition pathway and MTA. So um, maybe that's kind of an element of the delegation and what's going on with the services as well. But still, the Jasons didn't really get all that much different. And, you know, some people have been kind of questioning, you know, Admiral Grady didn't really seem to have, I think he was, you know, a commander of the Sixth Fleet and all this kind of operational experience, but um, hasn't really been in the acquisition side. So uh, would he, you know, have the, the kind of knowledge base from which to kind of tackle that system is potentially unclear, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of like, uh, some of the articles were really focusing on his lack of in the building, you know, he's not an in the building guy. And, um, you know, I did look at his his resume and I mean, he was on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so that's in the building, <laughs> very much in the building. And then he was also an aide to the to the Chief of Naval Operations, which, I mean, that's that's a pretty like that's a pretty in the building job too. I mean, you're you're pretty much like you know um, you're attending every meeting, you know, almost that the CNO goes to. So your exposure to uh, to the inside business is is pretty. Uh, um, it's a unique view that not many people get because you're not, you know, those four-star meetings are pretty, usually pretty close hold, but the aides generally would be in there. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, you might have a little bit more in the building experience than maybe people are giving them, but, you know, it, it's not that uncommon for like a chairman or vice chairman to, uh, to have been somebody that spent a lot of time in, you know, in operations and stuff like that. So General Goldfein, who was, uh, who was probably would have probably would have taken over. He was the recommended choice if uh, Mark Milley hadn't been chosen. Uh, you know, he he spent most of his time in operations too. So I'm not sure this is totally out of the out of the box uh, choice. But what is interesting actually though is that it said um, uh, this will be the first time since 2015 that an Air Force general will not be serving as either chairman or vice chairman. So it'll be. Uh, be an army navy uh army navy thing here so kind of interesting <laughs> yeah that might that might scare some in these upcoming roles and responsibilities or roles and missions debate that might be happening but um you know there's also a new space force so now they have uh, more opportunities to get someone slotted in there right <laughs> oh that'll be interesting when will the first time be that the uh chief of space operations becomes chairman or vice chairman that'll, that'll be that'll be a milestone to watch yeah uh, next next one we got commercial satellites show russian stealth fighters from the national interest these days it appears anyone with reliable internet access can tap into commercial radar satellites to do their own version of air-based monitoring as seen previously with the type 22 missile boats in china vehicles that are designed to be low observable to radar are not hidden from SAR satellites, that's synthetic aperture radar, including the new Russian Su-57 Felon um, fifth-generation fighter. The fidelity of the images show that it is possible to distinguish between different types of low-observable aircraft, even if the aircraft are low-observable, of course. I don't know why they said it again, but... <laughs> uh, so Again, this is kind of interesting. We were talking about this last week with uh, Mike in terms of the metaverse, and there's nowhere to hide, but... I think this is uh, definitely something to keep 
keep an eye on. I think it, they were using Maxar um, satellites here uh, to do this, but, or no, it's Capella, right? And Capella is actually, actually Capella is a new startup, right? They came out of, I think they got their start with hacking for defense and now they're kind of growing from there. So that's kind of interesting. But if you can make those things pretty uh, survivable, if you have like more of a proliferated constellation, then, you know, my question, I guess, for you is, you know, what's, where does that end? Like how, how well can, you know, low observable observables actually hide in that kind of world? Is it mostly based on like cloud cover or something? Yeah, this, well, I'll be honest, this whole, this whole thing didn't really make a lot of sense to me because I mean, stealth aircraft are designed to have a low radar cross section because of the fact that of, of how how the radar is hitting them, right? I mean, they the they angle, assume yeah. that the radar is hitting them at different angles. It might be from uh, a below at a certain angle, might be you know towards the front, might be might be on the top. So they're they're not 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 generally on the top, but you know might be slightly above above the horizon, you know, um, facing directly. In this so, case, it would be from the top, right? But the, yeah, but they're like no aircraft is designed to be low observable from the top because you just have too much surface area. So, right. I mean, I would argue you don't need SAR. SAR is pretty messy anyway. It takes a lot of pro processing afterwards to kind of clean it up. You got to have a lot of advanced algorithms. They actually just seem like they did a pretty good job in the Pentagon picture in the article. But, um, but generally, you don't even need SAR. I mean, you're going to see these things with the, with the millions of imagery, you know, commercial imagery satellites. Uh, you could you could probably task a, a French spot satellite and pick up these you know these fighters no problem. Um, so yeah, I don't really understand the whole thing about SAR. You're not going to use SAR to really detect aircraft. Um, well, how about uh, what about like the the Sibir? You know, could you like retask those to do to find aircraft? Oh yeah, I mean, but they're, they're more the Sibir satellites are more heat heat seeking so they would yeah they can definitely well i don't know how much i can say but i mean they're they're definitely they're definitely designed to pick up heat signatures and so you know um missiles and things like that right so they're that's what they're designed for is to detect missiles so a missile a missile is not that different from an aircraft in terms of you know what's coming out the back of it right it's all it's all sort of like a you know jet engine sort of heat so and despite yeah. the the problems that Sibber had i think it got started in the 90s but like that thing, people were saying like that thing was actually um, had incredible imagery. So I'm assuming um, if it's not like too cloud cover, they're going to be able to, to spot aircraft pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, I guess the bottom line is like we talked about last week, there's a million ways now you, you can't really hide. I mean, I think just look at the, the stuff that's come out about China, you know, they were doing the, the, and this was all civilian, right? Civilian imagery about the missile silos, right? They, they probably thought they were being somewhat sneaky, um, but that got picked up immediately. Recently, there was something about them building uh, models of, uh, you know, U.S. aircraft carriers in the, yep. the desert. So, uh, you know, nobody can hide anymore. There's too much, too much commercial capability. It's only going to get more, more available and, and, and probably cheaper. So, you know, any, any kind of amateur enthusiast that wants to look at Area 51, you know, they're going to be able to go look at Area 51. So, you know, you're not going to be able to hide stuff like you used to. Well, we need it, SAR. 
<laughs> I mean, this, yeah, yeah, just straight up commercial like imagery and, yeah. and probably computer vision on top of that, you'd be able to do a hell of a lot, which is, you know, I, I, I just wonder, like, what is how is that impacting requirements? I don't know. <laughs> we'll well, see. We, yeah, there are definitely like there are definitely SAR is definitely something that a military capability because it can penetrate, um, you know, into into areas that, that are not accessed uh, visually. So, you know, it definitely has a role that, um, so if, if these like self fighters were hiding under, I mean, if they're like really hard concrete structures, sometimes that is pretty tough, but if they were just under some like canopy cover or some type of like, you know, um, tarp or something like that, you know, SAR, SAR would be useful for that. But yeah, in general, so it is. A, it does have a military capability, but it's not. It's not needed to take a, to look at an airfield. This doesn't isn't obscured. <laughs> well, that might be useful for China's version of uh, Overlord, right? <laughs> if they're going to invade Taiwan. You might <laughs> want to see those deceptive tactics that they're probably yeah. going to employ. Next one, we got new AM General Chief vows to put the full weight of the organization into pursuing JLTV from Defense News. 2022 is going to be a watershed year for the light tactical vehicle industry. You got the JLTV competition coming up and you got the common tactical truck competition coming up and we want to compete to win. We're absolutely focused on shaping the conditions in 2022 to win the, to compete those programs. Uh, But incumbency matters. It gives a lot of advantages. You can debate how fair recompetes are with this kind of incumbency advantage, but the bottom line is there's no reason why we shouldn't, win in my mind for a living we make tactical vehicles and i think that was the the ceo there of am general so um yeah it looks like there's gonna there's gonna be a pretty big uh fight on on the hands for a jltv oshkosh is facing stiff competition um i wonder if they were expecting that uh all, all this recompete come up up front right but um guess i mean that was the plan right to get all the technical data package to be able to do the recompete but still. Yeah, I really hope that the, you know, I have zero insight, but I really hope that the, uh, the recompete, the RFP, the way it's structured, um, you know, really gives them a fighting chance because they seem really committed. I would love to see, you know, some type of situation where they can keep both uh, vendors kind of competing long-term, you know, JLTV is not going to be like a, a short-term thing. We're going to have that for a long time. So, you know, keep them in the game. Uh, they clearly have an appetite for it. I'm very interested, you know, one of the other one of the other things we've talked about before is like the ability in an RFP to have alternative proposals or to be able to propose things that the government maybe didn't ask for. Um, you know, it can be complicated, but they, they talked about there's opportunities with seven technical inserts to do things a bit a little bit differently, perhaps than Oshkosh, to, Oshkosh does. I really hope that they structure the RFP to allow for some of that innovation, some of those unique, you know, unique kind of things that maybe uh, aren't in the requirements, but, you know, once you find out about them, maybe you go, oh, actually, maybe that should have been a requirement or maybe we should explore that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about, about, uh, you know, there being some good competition here. This is good. Yeah. And uh, don't forget about GM defense kind of jumping <laughs> in that JLTV mix, right? We'll yeah. see if they can just reverse engineer the hell out of it and, and come up with something. <laughs> this one's I definitely going to go through a GAO um, process, I think. So we'll oh, yeah. a lot more. 
Uh, next one we got, JADC2 will fail without central DOD authority study from breaking defense. And that's, of course, Todd Harrison's study. Uh, the similarities of the network-centric warfare push to the evolution of JADC2 are almost eerie, and it failed. Almost every single one of those efforts uh, just listed, which included a whole long list, including uh, FCS, was canceled or curtailed, the study showed, with little or no, nothing to show for the billions invested. Such organization hub as the Joint All-Domain Command and Control uh, could take the form of a joint executive program office, similar to that managed by the prize service F-35 jet. It could be a new independent agency under uh, USD RE, akin to the Missile Defense Agency, or establish a lead com combatant command to set requirements, the study says. Um, so this comes back to one of our favorite kind of discussions here, like what's the right way to organize and get done JADC2. And of course, you know, this uh, study here was just saying, well, it's going to fail without kind of just putting one person in charge. And those were the three kinds of alternatives offered. Um, I don't know if the JPO concept um, looks so hot <laughs> right now from, from where they're at. Um, creating another independent agency like the Missile Defense Agency seems a little bit too disconnected as well, right? Especially under RE uh, from the actual services themselves and all the things that are going to need to happen. And then establishing a League Combatant Command to set requirements is actually seems like the more passive front. Um, but I'm not really sure how do you divvy out those requirements? Is it one monolithic thing? Uh, what does that look like? It's, it's not really quite clear that the combatant command is even the right one to make these kinds of, um, well, they would know what they want connected. So they could state pretty generally what they needed. So of, of the three, that one's my favorite, I would, I would suppose. Any thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you that, yeah, doing, doing a JPO or an MDA, I mean, those kind of structures when they're joint, they, they immediately just become bloated. I mean, I don't, I don't know why it's 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 a tendency, but I think because of the jointness, it's kind of like every service piles in and it just becomes this like kind of behemoth. So yeah, I, I agree that those, I don't think that's needed personally. I, I listened to a podcast where Todd talked more about this and I mean, he even acknowledged that all of those were kind of suboptimal. Um, at least that was my, my, my takeaway from it. Uh, the lead combatant command makes sense in this, in the sense that they should already be driving the requirements, at least the near-term requirements. Uh, but combatant commands are, you know, they're generally understood to be focused on the near-term, right? They have a mission they have to complete. Uh, so you do need somebody, you do need an entity that can look beyond just the near-term requirements and look at what are those, you know, kind of technical debt kind of decisions, those, you know, more strategic decisions for the, the next, you know, the things that are going to be needed in the future. So not that COCOMs can't do that, but, you know, they're going to provide one perspective. So I, I, I agree with Todd on some of these. Actually, the, the, the key reasons uh, part of it where he says uh, why things fail or why some of the past, you know, uh, efforts like uh, the, uh, the gig and the net ready and all that stuff, why, why that didn't work, um, jitters, was that they were overly ambitious. 100% agree with that, right? Like we were trying to conquer the world before even... Um, you, you know, getting our, getting our uh, foundation set. So, so I, in the podcast, he was talking about how like things like business systems and other kind of, you know, more backend systems should not be included, you know, 100% agree. We should chew this off, you know, in pieces, uh, assigning responsibility without authority. I, I agree, but you know, the, the services are 
empowered, right? To, to do, to provide the capabilities that the joint force needs. I mean, they do it for a million other things. There's no reason why this is so different other than it's a very federated kind of thing that needs to come together. So yeah, you need architecture, you need somebody to monitor those decisions, uh, to, you know, to be, uh, to, to have some overarching view of it. And I think you have a lot of people in OSD that can do that. You have, you know, you have the CIO, you have joint staff, you have ANES, you have RE. They, they can look across and see when something doesn't make sense and they review the budget every year. So, so I feel like some of that's already happening. Doesn't have, you don't have to get, you know, you don't have to be, you know, become dictatorial about it all, but you can identify those areas that don't make sense and say, hey, Navy, why are you doing that? That doesn't look like it's going to work with what the Air Force is doing or the Army. Um, the third one he brought up was issuing requirements and policies prematurely before the technology is developed. I mean, I think we've kind of acknowledged that the technology is generally there. So I don't think we're too far ahead of the, the, the technology. I think it's more about how to use the technology, how to integrate it, uh, how to scale it. So, uh, so I, I don't think that one is as applicable to ABMS as it was to maybe jitters, which was, or FCS or something that was jumping ahead of itself. And the last one was expanding the scope beyond battle network. So yeah, we talked about that one. So totally agree with his key reasons. But ultimately, don't agree with this final recommendation that you need some centralized authority. I, I think we need to figure out how to work collaboratively and make this work. And I think the Navy and Army, Army and Air Force have been pretty open about what they're doing. Um, they're all learning. They're, they're, you know, they don't all have, have it figured out. But, you know, there's no reason they, they, can't, uh, they can't do this and make it work. So. Yeah, there's nothing in my mind that will slow down and kill like a JADC2 effort than trying to formalize it into like one program office or something like that, make a huge formal program out of it with like this list of features that will be delivered in milestones over the next decade, right? Like yeah. leaving it a little bit kind of open-ended and, and irregular to start is probably a good thing. And I bet you that a lot of, there's a lot of things happening kind of um, under the radar that you know, are a lot more effective than most people are giving it credit for, but it's just not really visible, all the things going on. Well, one of the things that's definitely not, I will say it's just not sexy enough to, to really get a lot of attention is the kind of the infrastructure that's, that's being built. And, you know, it's super critical, but it doesn't, it doesn't provide an immediate capability. And I think, I think some of the COCOMs have actually gotten a little bit uh, antsy about this because they, they really want this capability to realize how important it is to the fight. Um, but some of these like foundational things need to be established for that future capability to kind of, you know, be easy, easier to develop and easier to scale. And yeah, so I think there's a lot of impatience on multiple fronts, but I, I do think, you know, some of those non-sexy investments will take time and yeah, it's going to be a long endeavor. Yeah. I saw this, uh, this thing on Twitter, <laughs> Junior enlisted troops may lose email in Army's platform transition. And mm. then the comment is, but hey, we'll connect all the sensors with all the shooters, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that's the classic. Uh, next one we got Raytheon and ONR test new distributed sensing software for Spy 6 radar naval news. During the demonstration, two surface-based radar emulators detected targets using distributed sensing capabilities. The demonstration proved that the tactical radars like the SPY-6 will benefit from advanced distributed radar concepts developed in the NCR program. Cooperative radars collaborate using distributed sensing capabilities to create a fuller picture of the objects in a given coverage area. So it wasn't really clear 
what was being distributed, which, which types of sensors were distributed and how, and how they were kind of connected at, at, with, with the SPY-6 to create a clear picture. But this might be another example of just one of like a thousand random things where interoperability is marginally being increased, right? Uh, so again, I wasn't really sure. Did you, were you able to pull anything else out of that? Well, I, I didn't understand how many, because uh, they talked about cooperative radars, which makes sense. Um, if you have a lot, if you have a bunch of different radars out there that are not currently being tasked and, and you can, you can task them, you know, to, uh, to look at this area, you know, that, that would definitely, I mean, radar is pretty much all about, you know, the more data you have, the more you feed in the, you know, the better the, the filter will be for, you know, for giving you a good characterization. So yeah, so it kind of makes sense to pull in other things, but it's distributed sensing makes makes it seem as if there might be other non-radar sensing capabilities that would also feed into it. So they didn't really talk about what those were. Or they, you know, yeah. mod, you know, little modules stuck on aircraft that are flying by, or they, you know, uh, <laughs> on telephone poles, or yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It was, <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. Uh, GAO finds little impact from Trump order directing deregulation the Hill. Officials from some agencies told GAO that any change in regulatory enforcement activities that occurred while the executive order was in effect were not in response to or a consequence of the executive order, the report said. Many opposed, the, many opposed to the executive order viewed it as arbitrary, encouraging government agencies to cut regulations for the sake of cutting them with little analysis of the potential impact. Now, a lot of these were with civilian agencies and particular, particularly with the EPA. But um, I think, you know, what was going on in the DOD, there was some kind of regulation, I guess, refactoring, right, with the adaptive acquisition framework. That seemed kind of separate from Trump's order. But I imagine a lot of that, that, that same kind of commentary would have taken place in the Department of Defense itself uh, that... You know, any kind of change wasn't really in response to the executive order. It was mostly just like the agencies doing what the agencies do. Yeah, I mean, I will say that the um, when I was still in the building, the uh, some of the political appointees did did have deregulation on their minds, um, and I, I know like the Secretary of the Air Force is very focused on you know looking at regulatory burdens and you know how 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 they you know how the Air Force might you know, kind of cut back on some of it. And, you know, I think in her office, she actually had like a stack of, of regs she had canceled or something. And so uh, it was definitely a focus. I mean, I think they got direction from, you know, uh, from, from, from the people in the white house on, you know, like, Hey, you need to look at regulatory stuff, but, but in general, like, it just makes sense that you only get rid of regulations that you don't need. You're not doing it just for the sake of doing it. Um, but it's not a bad, I actually kind of applauded this because it makes, you know, agencies should look at their, uh, at, at the regulations periodically and do a zero, um, oh, what do they call it? Uh, not zero sum, but zero basing, zero base. Yeah, exactly. Like, what do we, what do we need? Have we gotten like too out of control? Cause some of these regs can just sort of pile up and all of a sudden you have like, you know, six regulations. Sometimes they have like conflicting things in them and it hadn't been updated in years. So yeah, generally I thought it probably created the, the right behaviors, but you can't kind of, you can't just say like you get rid of, you know, you get rid of two to, to add one. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work that way. Well, China, China or not China, Canada has, has a rule like that, I believe. 
Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how well it works. Um, but yeah. and you can only keep that for so long, right? Like, you can't if you go to infinity in time with that, then you have zero regulations. I'd rather have a rule that says you're allowed to have policy, but it collectively can be no more than 100 pages for all of your policies. So use those 100 pages wisely or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Because it, again, it's just like, okay, your policies are 100 pages. And we see this with adaptive acquisition framework and FAR and all this stuff. But then it's just like, well, how many like implementation guides and user guides and like data formats and all these other things, manuals, am I going to have to read? Right. That's going to be stretched out over thousands of pages. Yeah. But the difference with policy, and I think, um, I think this was the focus. See, a regulation generally is, is, is like it's gone through a process and signed off at a high enough level where you're like, you're supposed to have to be, have to do it unless you get some, you know, permission from some other higher up. Uh, whereas, you know, guidance and other, other kind of, you know, um, manuals and stuff like that, like you might, you know, might just be kind of providing additional clarification or advice, but doesn't have to be complied with. So yeah, I, I definitely think we should should stray more towards guidance than policy. Uh, let the policy be really light and, you know, we can kind of, you know, give programs guidance, you know, and then they can do what's smart for their program. But yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, in my small experience in the building passing like you know dd forms and stuff like that um a lot of this stuff that's in implementation guides isn't uh isn't just like optional right <laughs> like contractors have to comply here's the data format if you don't give it to me in that <laughs> format you're fucked too, right so well, you did work um, in cape so uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right the last one we'll do here the navy stealth destroyers will have their deck guns replaced with hypersonic missiles the drive the launchers for these missiles which will be loaded onto the ships inside triple packed advanced payload module canisters will replace the 155 millimeter advanced gun system on these stealthy destroyers the navy decided back in 29 2016 not to buy any more ammunition for those guns due to ballooning costs and it's been reported that up to 12 of these hypersonic weapons could be loaded onto each DDG-1000 ship in the future. The Navy's also planning to integrate hypersonics into future Block 5 Virginia-class submarines, uh, likely also using the advanced payload module canisters. Um, And then they could also use this on other vessels as well. So again, it looks like, you know, the Navy is putting these DG-1000s, it looks like they're going to be kind of like a central aspect to a lot of their experimentation in, in future force structure uh, from what it can bring to the fight, particularly the stealth, but then what they can put on it if they can get hypersonics on it. So, um, but this kind of goes to show you, like, I don't know, that things change over time and to like have a, a, a hard requirement doesn't really make sense, especially with these kind of larger platforms that are by design kind of modular and able to be upgraded to, to new things. So, um, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, uh, Frank Kendall SecAF would question whether there's a, a re- real requirement to put these types of canisters on a DDG 1000, but, you know, I wonder he could be right. Like looking from the future, the DDG 1000 hasn't had a lot of success putting on, I think they had like 11 critical technologies that were like undeveloped. Uh, that need to be developed during that and not many of them worked so will this be another one that doesn't work i hope not but um again we'll we'll see what happens i'm sorry i'm still blown away that 
the ammunition for the guns is going to be somehow be cheaper than these likely very, very expensive missiles. I mean, the IRCPS missiles that they're talking about carrying um, uh, could be 30, 30 feet or more in length. Like a Tomahawk is 20 feet or so, roughly 20 feet. These things are going to be monster missiles. Um, that's somehow better than the gun. I, I'm, I'm still blown away by that. But uh, yeah, maybe it makes sense though. I, I, you know, one of the things I've wondered about the gun system is, you know, how often is that used in, in battle? Like, you know, is, is, is firing is firing the gun like is that something that you would do more often for kind of shore operations? And is that is that like in the con ops for for the navy or? Um, you know, is it for ship to ship battles? Like how, how common will that be? Maybe that will be common and are hypersonics better because they can maybe, I mean, I don't know if they could defend against a, a, a shell. I don't know. Is that more defendable than a hypersonic missile? I, anyway, I'm a little bit confused by the whole thing, but. Um, the advanced gun system that. here is a million dollars a round says Wikipedia. You're kidding. <laughs> I, I kid you not. It's amazing. Um, How is that possible? Uh, it's the it's shell. very possible. I think the the those shells like have a ramjet on them or something like that, right? So they're not they're not just like simple, you know, shells that you'd be launching off a battleship, you know, circa nineteen thirty. Okay, well maybe that makes more sense. And I didn't look up the advanced gun system. I just assumed it was a you know it was another another ammo. I mean, the the government buys you know so many different types of ammunition just uh figured it would be something that would be like yeah maybe you're spending you know ten thousand dollars or something but yeah that's if it's a million dollars a shot then that makes a lot more sense <laughs> yeah well that's all we got for this week and we'll talk to you next time matt thanks for joining thanks sir this concludes another episode of acquisition talk if you have comments interview recommendations or just want to chat please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.